first heard This American Life years ago in the late 1990s, I was blown away. I'd been an NPR listener for years, mostly in the car, but for some reason the style of storytelling I heard that date, it struck a nerve in me. It was right around July 4th, and I heard a story by the writer Sarah Vowell about following the Trail of Tears, interviewing people along the way and talking about the shameful history of that moment. The writing was sharp, poignant, and funny. And unlike a standard radio story, the voices in the story sounded like people you might know, not polished radio reporters. But what really grabbed me was the use of pop music to score parts of the story, similar to a movie. And although that type of storytelling has become the standard now, at the time, it was almost completely unheard of, especially in the relatively staid world of public radio. It blew my mind, and I wanted in. I wanted to make this kind of thing. But there were two really big problems with this idea. One, I was in school at the time for pre-med for some reason, so I would have had to have stopped that track and gone back and taken a whole bunch of classes that were unrelated to that goal. And two, the path to actually getting a show on the radio was somewhat unclear. I don't know, maybe you get an internship at an NPR station after college, and then what? Get a job somewhere, and then get well-known enough and well-liked enough to pitch a show to someone? Certainly commercial radio wasn't really interested in kind of arty radio stories. And also, the technology to make a show wasn't accessible to people who weren't in the radio business, so the dream was shelved. And by the way, I didn't wind up going to medical school either, but that's not what this episode is about. Around 10 years ago, long after graduating from college and many, many different jobs in between, even an entire failed career as a graphic designer, I learned how easy it was to make a podcast, and I decided it was time to dust off my old idea. I mean, there's a little more to it than that. I had to learn how to do sound design, and I had to learn to write things for podcasts, and I had to learn how to interview people, work recording equipment, and digitally edit things, and there's more, but we have an entire show to get to, so I won't go into the details, but here's what I'm getting at. It took a long time to get here, and you know what? Maybe not coincidentally. That's what our show is about, taking the long road to get somewhere. We'll start today with a conversation I had with... I'm Allison Lorenzen. I am a musician and I play keyboards and I sing. I recently read an article in Westward by John Solomon about Allison's new song, a collaboration with the band Midwife called Vale. That's V-A-L-E. I was intrigued both by her influence for the song and the idea of returning to a creative thing over the course of years, chipping away at it, polishing it, making it into something new. I grew up 
uh, taking piano lessons and I was always interested in music. I was always in musicals and choirs, but I never really thought that I had like a solo singing voice. And I also didn't uh, realize that I could write songs. So that came, that came in my twenties. And then um, once I started playing music, I loved that it was something that was outside of myself and kind of larger than myself. Whereas um, with dance, it was always me moving my body around in front of an audience. And I liked that music could kind of reach beyond that. You heard Allison mention dance there. Before this, the song, the band. Yeah, I grew up taking all of the you know, ballet, jazz, tap. And then modern dance started in middle school and high school. And then I ended up going to college and actually studying dance. I studied contemporary dance and uh, kind of focused on choreography and performance. And then after graduating, I had a, uh, I made some work in Minneapolis. And then um, on the East Coast, I had a dance partner and we made a bunch of work in Philadelphia and New York. So Music is a return to something for Allison, in a way, a different creative outlet that had been simmering for years. And just to refresh, we're talking about... My song, Veil, I started writing it back in 2011 after reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I just feel like it sort of grew almost organically over time. I've played it with a few different music projects starting back in Philadelphia in 2011. And I think I was even calling it The Road at the time because it was influenced by that book. And then I started my band School Dance in 2012. And we played the song in a lot of live performances. And then when I ended that project, we stopped playing in 2017. I took a break from music for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And then I was starting to develop a solo sound and return to the song. As you heard her mention, Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, played a role in the making of this song. And just as a quick refresher, if you haven't read it or haven't read it for a while, The Road is about a man and his son trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic America. It's very bleak and nightmarish, and it's written in this stark, almost biblical prose, which is pretty fitting given the subject matter. So I read The Road, and to me it was a harrowing novel. But I was taken by the imagery and the language in particular, um, and and just those like really visceral feelings of kind of desolation and despair. So I would say it was more of like an abstraction of of the imagery and and the language. There's a line in particular where you know it's a father and son, and they're kind of trying to survive in this post-apocalyptic hellscape. <laughs> um, and uh, McCarthy writes that they're each other's world entire. And I really love that line. And so there's a line in Vale um, that says, To each other the world entire, covered in ashes thin, the luck of the draw were the luckiest. So yeah, just really looking at the language, like the first few sections of Vale, are um, strong references to the book. So the song stayed in that state for a while, in the darkness of the road. And darkness isn't an unusual place for Allison to create things. I do feel comfortable creating darker material for whatever reason. It's a direction that 
I've always gone, especially musically and actually dance wise to uh, my dance partner. And I at the time made some extremely dark dance works <laughs> and they kept getting darker and darker. And I think that's partly why I stepped away from it um, because it felt like each piece had to like top the darkness of the last. <laughs> and uh, so I just kind of uh, stepped stepped away from that for a while. But yeah, I mean, sonically, I feel like it's something that for whatever reason resonates with me. There's just a deeper level of interest for me. I guess I would say like typically I don't love things that are like scary or violent or something in terms of like movies, but I do appreciate some element of darkness or maybe kind of unexpected in that way. To me, it brings like a certain depth to the art. But the song Veil, it stayed in that dark place for a while, and Allison moved on to other projects and things. But the song never really felt finished. I always enjoyed this song, and it was one that was never, it just felt like it had never found its full form you know we had never recorded it and it felt like the song was kind of waiting for completion and I was just playing around with it so really the first like three kind of stanzas of the song are all really influenced by the road and then it says in the pale of the warmth in the pale of the fire I'm like a tiger roar and then it repeats again in the pale of the warmth in the pale of the fire I'll let you go now. I'll let you go. I'll let your body go. So all like that whole section and then the rest of the song, that was all written in around 2018. And yeah, definitely influenced by Pale Fire, the novella, because I just, I love Nabokov's writing. And then I love that image and like the language of just those two words together, Pale Fire. And let's see, the second half of the song, it was influenced um by all right this is gonna get a little woo-woo maybe but um I have a friend who does energetic and intuitive sessions and an image came up in a session it was an image of me standing next to a fire but surrounded by complete darkness and there were two dogs with me like large wolf type dogs and they were kind of guarding me and protecting me and um it was a bit of like a a reunion, uh, but with myself. And so, yeah, just this feeling of like being at peace really with oneself in the darkness, in the unknown. So I'd say that image itself was a, a strong influence for the second half of the song. And although Allison was developing her solo sound, she did have a helping hand in redeveloping this song. I have known... Madeline Johnston of Midwife since probably around 2015 and then over the years we just sort of really enjoyed each other's music and then after taking a break for about a year or so after school dance I reconnected with her and then from that point um, I forget if she proposed it or if I proposed it but I know she was wanting to explore uh, recording and producing for someone other than herself because she records all of her own music. So I went to her house and it was like a chilly February afternoon and we we did most of the tracking for Vale. We did the synths and layers of vocals and just used an old drum machine. 
And then after that session, Maddie added um, their beautiful, fuzzy, heavy guitars that are kind of her signature sound. And then um, she added some vocals, which really fill out the end of Veil. What I like about this reworking of the song, adding a different literary influence at the end, having Midwife come in and add some more sonic elements, is that it's exactly the opposite way Allison could have gone, considering the bulk of the new work on the song happened after the pandemic started and we were all in a darker and kind of more alone place. I was actually planning to move to New York last March. Um, I had a job lined up, and so I had already, like, sold my furniture and moved out of my place and uh, Maddie was planning on a tour she had a tour booked for Europe that was around the same time so the plan was that she was actually going to drive to New York play a show there and she was going to drive my synths out for me so I'd have them with me in New York and um, so yeah the timing was that we wanted to try to get most of Vail tracked before before that Um, and then it ended up being that we just were able to get it tracked before quarantine and when all of those other plans uh, fell through. Um, and then actually we were, we sent a couple of things back and forth a bit um, and kind of, I would say, took a break from finishing the song during the summer. And then in the fall, I finally had a home recording set up. So I was able to um, record the piano track which comes in about maybe a third of the way and um, and so that was recorded on the piano that I grew up taking piano lessons on which was fun and uh, it was before I had gotten it tuned actually so it was like a little bit off key which I, I kind of like for this song and then I added also those pretty high kind of airy vocals at the very end and I sent those over to Maddie and then she you know, mixed it all, mixed it all together. And uh, yeah, and then that was the final version. So without any further ado, let's hear that final version. This is Veil by Alison Lorenzen featuring Midwife.
Thanks to Allison and, of course, Madeline Johnston for the song and the story behind it. If you want to hear more from Midwife or buy the track from Allison, there will be links in the show notes, of course. Next up, we have a story from Brad Mudge, a guy you've heard a few times before on this program. Brad is my neighbor and a professor and just an all-around kind of smart guy. The pandemic brought some older memories to the surface, and he found a way to connect to them, writing them in an essay that he's called Days Later. Looming large among my earliest memories are trips to the library with my mother to return, collect, and check out the books that would mark the new week. The library was just a mile away on Roland Avenue, down the hill from the fancy prep school from which I would later graduate, and just across from Tuxedo Pharmacy where I would buy my first cigarettes and meet my college girlfriend. The library was made of the kind of gray stones you see a lot in Baltimore, rough and irregular, understated but impressive, beautiful. To me, the library was just the right size. Stairs numerous but manageable, front doors towering and white. My knees bend and push. I have misgivings about the short pants. None of the other boys are wearing them. Before I knew anything much about books, I had waited with my mother in a long line outside those same front doors to get the sugar cube with the polio vaccine. Polio was scary because it went after children. And it had killed my Aunt Eleanor, who, before she died, had achieved a kind of fame by being on the cover of a magazine. This because she had given birth in an iron lung. I had seen pictures of iron lungs, small submarines going nowhere, heads of children stuck grotesquely at the end, bodies trapped inside. I was unclear at the time whether doctors cured the disease you had or punished you for having it. I was quite clear, however, about not being put in an iron lung. After the sugar cube, I learned how to read, and because I was an only child growing up in the 60s, the library became a weekly event. You didn't want to be an only child in the 60s, at least in my neighborhood, which was wealthy and white and considered families of less than five as distinctly disappointing. In my neighborhood, only children were a kind of failed eugenics experiment, and the descriptor of choice was spoiled, a word that was offered up frequently and emphatically to describe bad apples and children like me, without siblings and with too much free time. It was common knowledge that I used that free time to manipulate my parents into giving me exactly what I wanted. What I wanted was books, seven new ones each week, to be precise. So every Monday, seven went back and seven new ones were selected, in the beginning, there were pictures, and the books were large and thin and easy to stack and carry. 
After a while, not so much. But the effort was worth it, my fictional world becoming heavier and more substantial. From the start, I felt the need to escape, first on the back of Black Beauty, and then more reasonably in the company of Bob, Son of Battle, White Fang, and Lassie. Even now, it seems perfectly reasonable to prefer the company of dogs. Out in the world, meanwhile, the terrors of the Iron Lung had to vie with somebody named Khrushchev, who wanted to bury me, and then with the bad man who shot the president. John John stood alongside his mother and saluted something I couldn't quite understand, but the significance of which was as palpable as the tremors of an earthquake. Even after the sugar cube then, the Roland Park Library continued to distribute vaccines, the success of which seemed to require weekly boosters. Books are always themselves and always also what we most need them to be. And growing up, I needed books to protect me against a variety of diseases, large and small. Books defended against insecurity and loneliness and the possibility that I was, in fact, spoiled rotten. Books were early and fast allies in this long, strange illness we call having a life. The neighborhood library soon yielded to others. Gilman Hall at Hopkins, East Campus Library at Duke, the HRC in Austin, and then, before I really knew what I was doing, the reading room at the British Museum, where Marx wrote Capital and Virginia Woolf mused about Professor Von X, and I researched a book on Coleridge's daughter, Sarah, who was, like her father, a brilliant hypochondriac with a lifelong addiction to opium. Unlike her father, however, Sarah was plagued by pregnancies and childbirths and mothering, which sent her to her sick room and, paradoxically, earned her the seclusion to do her work. Virginia Woolf, who knew a thing or two about illness and sick rooms, and who wrote about Sarah while the Battle of Britain raged in the skies above her, was sympathetic. Writing less than a year before her own suicide, Wolf was already losing faith in books and libraries and their ability to cure what ails us. Since those early days at the museum, it's been the British Library on Euston Road, too many times to count. I've also worked in the Queen's Library at Windsor Castle, where, I'm pleased to say, I looked at dirty etchings wearing clean white gloves. Windsor requires a security clearance, and the Queen's Library is open only from 10 to 12 and 2 to 4, hours that confirm at once the high seriousness with which my profession views itself and the utter ridiculousness of its doing so.
Last March, after the pandemic jerked me out of yet another fancy library and returned me to Denver, to my gritty urban university and my earnest students, I volunteered to teach on campus and wondered what that would be like. At the time, the choice was only about doing what was easiest for me, a style of decision-making preferred by only children everywhere. My students are not big on dorms, cafeterias, or frat parties, so I figured at summer's end there would be something like normalcy. After all, ours is a commuter campus where students skew older and more responsible, often with jobs, families, and debt already in place. Although quiet hours in a library are for them not typical, Although few indeed actually read books for pleasure, my students are bright and hardworking and optimistic. Normalcy is what they do best. I was wrong, of course. Even to ask for normalcy was to invite disaster. Students on the Boulder campus normally indulge in the social rights that have become the chief attraction of elite higher ed. By the end of September, there were 1,200 new cases and campus was closed. Normally, my students come by bicycle and bus and light rail to be taught 18th century British literature. And normally, I play the tour guide, genial, eccentric, mindful of the optics. Confident, usually, that I can find the best spots from which to take in the view. But these are not normal times. So it was that I found myself sitting outside my office this past fall, smelling the smoke from distant wildfires and thinking of the opening scenes of 28 Days Later, where the hero wakes up in London to find that a pandemic has, during his illness, emptied the city of its inhabitants. The scene on which I gazed was less dramatic, certainly, but no less haunted. I looked out on Ninth Street Park, one of the oldest streets in Denver, whose charming Victorian houses were built in the 1870s and 1880s, some before Colorado had even become a state. Now university offices, they had originally belonged to up-and-coming Irish merchants, then later to a thriving Hispanic community. Slated for demolition in the early 1970s, they'd been saved at the last minute, the street between them grassed over, making a small park that became a favorite gathering place for faculty, staff, and students, and also for an ever-burgeoning population of rabbits that has in turn sported enterprising predators, among them foxes, raccoons, hawks, and owls. Years ago, on a similarly quiet afternoon, my wife and I saw a pair of great horned owls just outside my office. Huge, beautiful, soundless. They seemed utterly unperturbed by the excited humans who followed them from tree to tree. Looking out on this eerily empty scene now, this well-manicured Victorian ghost town with its plentiful rabbits, I thought of deserted London streets and sharp talons, 
gratified for a moment that at least I didn't have to worry about an outbreak of zombies. Although, to be sure, evidence was mounting that they had already taken over our nation's capital. At least I knew where to go for comfort. The library was closed for normal business, but it did have drop-off and pick-up. So up the steps I went like that little boy years ago with my stack of books, knees bending and pushing. An officious young man sat at a long table blocking the doors. No admittance here, but I can get you a receipt. Pick up, write. Coffee shops closed. Clearly, comfort here was to be in short supply. No sugar cubes. No miracle cure, no reassuring maternal presence, nothing much in the way of sweetness. Turns out I was looking in the wrong place, and had been for quite a while. Like my film counterpart, I'd followed a misleading signal, although admittedly with less dire results. His supposed refuge turns out to be run by a rogue platoon of psychopathic survivalists, Mine by nervous librarians. Even so, you, you never want to cross a nervous librarian. Had I voiced my disappointment, my students would have been unsympathetic. Partly because they don't use the library. More because they were now happily chatting about Mary Wollstonecraft, whose opinions about the false system of education for women they found compelling. The classroom was cavernous, and half my students sat before me, masked and distant, speaking to each other and to their classmates, to the other half, who were up on the screen behind me. It took a day or two for me to understand what was going on, that the students physically present were occluded, masked and muffled, hard to see and hear, while those at home were up close and personal, faces bright and expressive, sitting in bedrooms and living rooms and kitchen, attended by family pets, small children, and various sorts of roommates, all of whom drifted in the background like jellyfish on the current. It may have looked at first like a rerun of Hollywood Squares, but there were oceans of possibility. Oddly, however, my masked and muffled students also began zooming in. That is, they continued to come to class, but once there, opted to be in both groups at once. Their laptops shrunk the big screen behind me, pulling their classmates closer and more into focus, while at the same time projecting their own images back into and up on the screen. Anything, it seemed, to close the distance. But not really just to see and be seen. It was the conversation they were after, to hear and be heard about the authors and the books and the ideas under discussion. However interesting, the images were serving only as placeholders. Ignore the jellyfish, their eager voices suggested, and just follow the chat. 
follow the questions about why Wollstonecraft would have thought femininity a kind of disease, making women weak and passive and complicit, a kind of virus easy to catch and hard to shake. Consider that books are not things to be visited, but voices to be heard, and that the worst disease of all might be that which takes away our ability to listen. It turns out that seeking comfort is less satisfying than providing it. And while I will admit to certain ongoing fantasies about the reading rooms at the British Library, not all of which involve carrot cake and coffee, now is not the time. After all, zombies still roam, which is why on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, I'll continue to show up with my stack of books and pass out the sugar cubes that keep the iron lungs at bay. Brad is a professor and writer and, of course, my neighbor. You can find his books out in the wild where books are found. And that's it for today's show. I just realized I never introduced myself at the top of the show, which may be important, but, you know, kind of who cares? It's not really about me. You can find Low Orbit on the social medias, the Instagrams, Facebooks, and Twitters, of course. I guess we're on Clubhouse, uh, but there's no way to link to that, and I don't have the slightest idea what to do there, uh, but... You have to have a presence on all the social medias these days, so... Anyway, we also have an email at denverorbit at gmail.com. I get about three emails a month there, so, you know, if you wanted to even just say hi, that would be cool. And we'll have a new episode out soon? Probably. I just have to find something to put in it. Bye. Bye.